We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a The sprinting stats may not have been flattering for our midfielders, but thanks to Mark Noble and Jack Wilshire, they'll look positively blazing this weekend. This is the Arsenal Vision pre-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. This is a pre-match podcast. We're doing a preview. We can do that. doesn't have to all be just post-match, just because the name is post-match. What's in a name? Who said that? Uh, might have been Drill on Twitter. Anyway, uh, yeah, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, the, the running stats were published, sprint speed stats, and... Three of the slowest players uh, in the team apparently are Granit Xhaka, Matteo Ganduzzi, and Lucas Torreira. But when you have Jack Wilshere and Mark Noble coming to the Emirates, you still look fast. And that's all that matters is that you're faster than the opposition. And always faster with the wit than the opposition is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Posting My Pants. Hello, Pos. Woohoo! Who, indeed, you may have noticed that you've not heard me extolling the virtues of Beer 52 yet. But you will. You will hear me extolling the virtues of a beer 52. So stand by for that. And by the way, look, I mean, if you live in the UK and you like beer, they send you free craft beer, a free case of craft beer. Just get the beer. I mean, seems pretty obvious. It's like the three points on hand this weekend. Come on, Arsenal, just get the three points. But these fangs, it's the th- three points are a bunny and you can't, you've got these fangs and you've got these teeth and you, the claws and you can't kill the bunny. Kill the bunny, Arsenal. Just take the three points. That's a little swingers reference. Paul, Let's get into it before I go down this rabbit hole too far. <laughs> I mean, I'm all the way down, and I haven't even mentioned Patreon yet. By the way, uh, Stilberto, Tim Stillman, is going to be doing preview videos uh, on the Patreon side starting next week, so you're going to want to look out for that, uh, which is great. 
So if you haven't signed up for Patreon yet and you feel like it, now be a good time. We have a Matteo Ginduzzi episode there. We're going to have uh, video previews from Tim on there. Uh, we have another podcast coming out next week just for Patreon. So lots of good stuff over there. And if you haven't done it and you don't want to do it, we love you anyway. Thanks for listening. Anyway, okay, Paul, let's start with prediction stuff. Uh, first of all, did you see the sprinting stats? The the running speed uh, stuff that I, came I, out? Aubameyang put it on his Snapchat, I guess, or Instagram story or something like that? I did. I wonder how Arsenal... Uh, training feels about that but yeah i did um thoughts it, it was interesting yeah uh, obviously a small sample size uh but but probably uh fairly representative i mean sprinting sprinting um though i suspect ozil probably always has another gear but they it's interesting because they show you percent of max which i presume means they have a theoretical top or maybe maybe that's your best ever performance um, so yeah, it was interesting. Um, I mean, it, it asks as many questions as it answers because we then all got into a discussion about, you know, what really counts in midfield. Like when I've watched, I, I never thought Torreira, for example, was super fast, uh, in terms of any kind of top speed or 40 meters. Uh, but for where we need him to operate, Unless things are going really badly and he's having to run half the length of the pitch to catch somebody, you want what I've really been impressed with him about is how he anticipates, how he he's already moving uh, yeah. before anybody else is moving. So I'm not worried about him. I think he's going to be, and he's so quick. And you know, it, it's the old, it's not the straight line speed. I think we also shared the Cristiano Ronaldo versus a sprinter video today, and. Uh, the ability to uh, that side to side movement while slaloming uh, around the midfield is much more imp- important because nobody, uh, unless again you're chasing somebody the length of the field, you don't run in a straight line. Uh, you, uh, you'll probably also remember the uh, Cesc Fabregas video for Chelsea. Did you see that one, Elliot? Uh, the one no, but, but with I the cones. I, the one with the cones. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. And, and he beats... It's hypnotic. I can't remember. He's going up against some young Tyro, and he, he beats that person just with the angle he takes on the cones, dribbling by the cones or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there's like three of them, and one of them's, I think, Willian. There was certainly somebody there who was super fast, and you're basically doing this star pattern, picking up cones, dropping them in the middle, and Sesk <laughs> blazes. He doesn't look like he's going to win. He doesn't look like he's... But he's just so clever with his movement uh, and quick with his turn and that he blazes through and beats the other two guys to the center. So now uh, so, maybe right. I've, I, I've proved, uh, unproved myself because Sesk, I don't think, has startled us any time recently in the midfield. But, you know, d- different things are different things. I'm so, going to anyway, take a what, different what approach What did you take this. out of it? Well, yeah. so at first I was looking at it. I was like, yeah, sprinting speed versus burst speed because Welbeck is behind holding Mustafi, uh, Socrates. The the, only, the top two are Aubameyang and Bellerin, which you expect. Then it goes Socrates, Uwobi, Mustafi holding Welbeck. And I'm thinking, Welbeck is blazing fast, or at least he seems it. And I was thinking, you know what? This is where you have to question what speed really is about. Welbeck has that burst, that acceleration. And acceleration speed in football can be more important than top speed because you're very rarely running a dead sprint as fast as you can. Now, if you're a center back at Arsenal, that may not be the case because you're turning around and running towards your goal as a ball is going over your head and a, a striker's running onto it. But then I realized it's pretty clear what happened here. Uh, this has been doctored by Arsenal to put three of our center backs near the top of it to try to allay any concerns that we have about our defensive capabilities. So this is propaganda. Uh, and Aubameyang, I guess they got to him. They said, hey, look, you missed a couple sitters at the weekend. And uh, 
you know, we can put out some unflattering stuff on social media about you, but if you can put something on your Instagram story that shows our central defenders are quick, we can we can look past that. So maybe there's a little of that going on. Um, but let's put that to one side. Before we get into some of the hot news topics of the day, let's just look ahead to the West Ham game at the weekend. And this is the season starting uh, properly. Clive dubbed it Project 24. And then uh, Scott, who will be along later, stole it. Uh, and used it in a short fuse article. So now it's Scott's Project 24, and Clive doesn't own it anymore. So anyway, the the Project 24 thing was meant to reference the next eight games and getting 24 points from them. Now, obviously, you know we're not expecting the 24 points, but three points are really essential here at home to West Ham. And so the, the manager's been talking a little bit about what he's going to do, and one of the things he was asked about is whether he would bring in Lacazette and go to two up front, and he seemed to suggest no. He, he still believes that we get the best possession, best control of the game with one up front and an extra man in midfield. How do you feel about the decision, and do you assume he'll stick with uh, with Aubameyang up front? Yeah, you would think so. Um, plus, he said for now in terms of the two up front, and it makes sense. Right, he's yeah. still... He still has not – he's all about establishing ident, an identity. And what that probably needs is one really good win followed by some other good wins. So he's still in search of his good win. Um, I'm very much in Project 18 or better for the next uh, eight games. Just you got to be a little bit realistic here. We're no more nailed down than than uh, – we're less nailed down than many of the teams we're playing even if we may have – May and should do you have think 18 players. points is good enough, though? Or do you think, while it may be realistic, it's not enough? Uh, I think, well, it's not enough uh, unless we really uh, crack the code and we, we zoom it in the second half of the season. So it, it depends on what, I'm just, I'm trying not to freak myself out by getting too, uh, I'm trying to be realistic. You can't expect more than is reasonable. And I think as supporters, it's not always the case, but these next few months are just about chilling back, letting the, giving the guys some space to work. It's the classic, you know, the crime scene and the, the cops are all, come on, step back, step away from the rope, nothing to see here kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. or, or or the operating theater and the husband wants to come in and, and like start directing the surgeon. This is kind of a few weeks and a few months where it's like, guys, get the fuck out of the way. And, and let these guys, we're going to take some lumps, let these guys do their thing. So that's, I'm not, you know, I can't legislate to everybody else what they should do, but that's what they should do. And certainly what my general t- take, I think about 18, 19, something like that. I mean, if we got 18, I'd be maybe a little bit underwhelmed, but, and have to remind myself why I thought that was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we need 20. Uh, yeah. We need, we need more than that to, to be in the top four chase in the first half of the season, or we got to really crack the code and and zoom it in the second half of the season. But realistically, 18 seems about right to me. Yeah, okay. I mean, I I would like to see us get more than that. I can definitely agree with you that 18 sounds... You know what I would say, Paul? I'd say 18 sounds doable, but I don't know that doable is enough. You know, I think this is where we really have to put a lot of pressure on our other top four competitors and, and the opportunity is there. And I'm not suggesting games like, you know, Palace away. Are we playing them away or I think it's away? Are easy games or not, but we're probably going to have to get some points in, in games like that, having started with none. Now, the, the question I guess we're you playing have... playing Palace away, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a toughie. Um, I think the question you have to ask is, is what Emery should do in this game vis-a-vis the lineup 
and having lost his first two games. How important is it for you that he stick with his guns here, that he not look at those results and start tinkering now, but that he use what he did in the first two games and and as sort of the warm-up to this and that he stick with it? I mean, do you want to see him make any drastic changes going into this, or would you like to see him stay the course? He's absolutely got to stay the course. Uh, I mean, even uh, Gary Neville, who only had... A very short tenure as a manager learned what happens when after seven games you kind of lose your nerve and do a major compromise. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to the play. If you do it once in the early days, I think you're fucked. I think what that says is you don't actually believe that in your system or you don't believe uh, salvation is a game or two away. Um and neither will your players then. And no, no player wants to get beaten for the next, not only the game they're getting shafted in, but the next few games. You've got to believe it's just around the corner if they'll just do the next thing. I mean, if you look at that first Chelsea goal when they come down our right side and Bellerin moves inward and Mkhitaryan, you know, Mkhitaryan got slaughtered for not covering Alonso. But he's actually not far away from doing it. I mean, he should be slaughtered because he's, he's 80% of the way there. He kind of... He, he doesn't spot him for the first second. Then he runs back after him, but not intensely enough. Um, and so that that triangle there between uh, Mustafi, Bellerin, and Mkhitaryan, or whoever's on that side, they've got to stick with it. There was no reason we couldn't have covered, covered that uh, break by Alonso if the guys had been on their marks yeah. been sharp and been committed. And I think that's happening all over the pitch, right? It's it's uh, 10% one way rather than 10% the other. And so people have got to have absolutely no fucking doubt that that's what they're going to be doing until we get it right, until we start clicking, and that the promised land will show up the day that the guys show up and do what they've done in practice. Um, it, so you saw that, other. Th- I think we uh, kind of shared a conversation where uh, I don't remember the names, guy's name, but Emery's assistant coach, Carcada mm-hmm. or something like yep. that, ran on, ran on after the pitch. It was reported straight to Torreira and uh, spent a minute maybe berating, berating him is too strong a word, but it, a- in a very... Admonishing him? Uh, admonishing in him? A very, yeah, mm-hmm. in a very pep kind of emotional way, pointing where, where he was... On, to the area where the, the goal was, where he was, where he should have been. That's what we got to do for the next six, seven, or eight games. Otherwise, it's like uh, good money after bad. If if we do all of this for the first three, four, five games, and then we say, oh, we'll compromise for a couple because the results aren't where we need, you're back to fucking square one and maybe back a few places from there into negative territory. So yeah, that's a very long way of saying. Well, no, you, I, I agree. you got to commit. Yeah, because I think also, I mean, to be fair... I think most people agree that there were some positive takeaways from the the first two games. You know, granted, the results are not, and some of the mistakes defensively were worrying, but some of the things we created in attack were really quite impressive and encouraging. So, you know, when you yeah, look at this... Keep the, sp- the good, lose the bad is basically... Well, and we know what the bad is. It's the defending, and it's probably not going to get fixed right away. So, you know, you might as well stick with, with the good. Now, you come up against a West Ham team, it looks like they played sort of a 4-2-3-1 when they got destroyed by Liverpool and then went to more of a 4-4-2 in losing to Bournemouth. Um, it's, you know, it's a bad start for them. And their midfield 
looks like an area that we can expose. I mean, obviously, we don't know how they'll line up, but Mark Noble and Jack Wilshire in midfield, not a lot of running, not a lot of pace, not a lot of mobility there. So for you, how would you set us up specifically in the midfield to try to take advantage of that matchup? Yeah, uh, I've seen it described as a 4-4-2 against Bournemouth, and it probably was, but uh, the the action I saw was Noble sitting deep and Wiltshire being sig- uh, significantly forward of him, and the other guy, Snodgrass. I, I would have thought it was a 4-3-3, but it, I mean, it probably wasn't. It was just the, the sequences and the period I watched. It kind of looked like that was a three with Noble a little bit deeper. Uh, Jack pushed ahead. So Jack's going to be the guy who's attempting to press, um, for example, uh, mm. Torreira and Chaka. So uh, I like that matchup for obvious reasons. So this could be the game that uh, Chaka has the bit of space. So I could see going with Torreira or, and Chaka as the two in midfield. I think Chaka will get a bit of space and maybe kind of begin to grow into this season. He's a little slow on those things. Um, and well, who's going to be in midfield with them then? Yeah, that's the tough one. I think the manager has been talking about uh, control, and he talked about control as the reason he moved to uh, Torreira in the second half, but it was with Genduzi. So I'm. It's really tough. If he goes with a three, I'd guess it was Torreira with Chaka and Genduzi, kind of either side of him and ahead of him. Um. If not, I think Torreira and Chaka would tend to be my preference. But obviously, that, that leaves out Ganduzi, who's been great. But Chaka Ganduzi doesn't didn't give us control and doesn't give us control. Um, on the other hand, the manager kind of pointed the finger at having two young midfielders against um, Chelsea, which was Torreira and Ganduzi in the second half. So uh, I. You know, I, I'm Torreira and Chaka should work if they're not overly pressed. So mm-hmm. a little harsh on Ganduzi. I'd go with those two in the midfield as the kind of the two pivots, whether it's in a three or or a four-two-three one. Those been the two deeper of the midfielders. Yeah. Well, I mean, the one thing we can expect is probably to have more of the ball in this game than we've had all season, and to face a defense that sits back more uh, and and doesn't press us as much now. That could yeah. be great, but, I mean, it, it changes the challenge, obviously, for what we need to do. So, I mean, we, we know that what um, Emery has done in the first few games, like when he started Ramsey against City, he played him almost as a center forward to be the trigger for the press. And then he left him out in the second game, and, you know, he put Ozil in that position, who's obviously not going to trigger the press, and that led to them having a little too much comfort on the ball in midfield up against our high line. So, you know, assuming West Ham sit back and basically probably try to play a little bit long over our high line and that we press them, do you have any concern about getting the right balance for that, getting the right pressure on them? And is the way to do that to bring Ramsey back in and have him trigger that press? Do you keep Ozil at the 10? What what are you doing with that that front line? To me, it feels right where we're at at the moment that you're either picking Ozil or Ramsey. And I think for political reasons, almost non-football reasons at the moment, uh, Ozil is the guy who's going to be soonest on the the, uh, the sheet. So um, I'm keeping Mkhitaryan and Obamayang and Ozil in our front three. 
Uh, the question is, is Ozil our third midfielder? Is he the 10 or is he on the wing? Do you bring in somebody like Awobi on the left? So I, I'm going to assume Ramsey's not playing. Um, and uh, uh, Can, we, can my, we press effectively? So here's the thing, right? I don't... Yeah. This is what scares me. And this is why I'm worried that the first two games we had maybe aren't the right preparation for this. You know... What I saw Chelsea do is something that I worry West Ham can do, which is sit back, try to be compact. Now, I'm not saying Chelsea sat back, but what I mean is where they really hurt us was Jorginho having a lot of space to operate and pinging balls in over the high line. Um, and we're probably going to press and play a high line. And without Ramsey triggering that press and with Ozil in there, he's just not going to be as intense. And you don't need the most skillful players in the league to beat a high line with long balls if you've got time on the ball. So, I mean, can you really trust Ozil to ensure that they don't have that time to look up and just play Arnautovic and, you know, running in behind Mustafi and Socrates all game? Well, Aubameyang needs to be pressing the Jorginho position, which is going to be noble here. Um, and he can do that. I mean, he played for Dortmund, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't he? Yeah. I Mikatarian mean, played. Yeah. <laughs> Mkhitaryan played for Dortmund. I mean, there's two of your front three, uh, assuming Mkhitaryan starts, who should know what to be doing during the press and with the triggering. So the the only other question, uh, I, I don't think we're going to see Ramsey central again uh, in in the Aubameyang spot for, from the point of view of trigger, triggering. Uh, he probably didn't enjoy it, and it wasn't a particularly great success. Ozil's going to have to play somewhere. Um in, in these kinds of games, certainly. The only question is what we do in, in those really tough games. But we should see enough of the bowl for Ozil to be on the pitch. And he should be good. He should be intelligent enough to be part of the press and the trigger. I mean, the guys, you know, that's when we're trying to turn something over and make something happen. So he's got double incentive. First, to, to uh, push the press. And second, because he's going to be the guy who benefits, gets the ball when things are shook up. And lays on the pass for Aubameyang and Mkhitaryan. So, um, he, you know, th- if he can't do this, then what are we doing? Where is his role going to be? He has to play yeah. a role. If a he very can't be in these games. Role. Sorry. Yeah, I was just, if he can't be in these games, Paul, where, where you're playing weaker opposition at home and you're going to need that extra spark of creativity to unlock a little bit of a packed defense... I don't see what his role is. I agree with you. And yeah. we've paid him 350,000 pounds a week. At a minimum, we need him to be a flat-track bully. I mean, I'm not saying that's all he can do, although you could yeah. make an argument. But being flat-track bully is fine because if you can beat 16 of the teams in the league, you know, or 15 of the teams in the league with regularity, you're going to wind up pretty near the top at the end of the season. The The question yeah. is, I mean, you've got Awobi who, com- who comes off one of his best games for Arsenal in recent memory, and Mkhitaryan who had a lot of nightmare per- uh, moments in the match, but scored one and assisted one. And those were the two guys who played alongside Aubameyang. And so based on their performance against Chelsea, both have a strong argument for staying in the lineup. I don't think Mesut Ozil gives us the intensity in the center of our midfield. I think Torreira, Shaka, and Ganduzi, it's going to be two of those three in the deeper positions. It comes down to Ramsey and and, and uh, Ozil again, potentially. It does. I yeah. mean, certainly if, if it's a meritocracy based on who will be in Mkhitaryan's performance, which leads me to want to ask you about this sort of yellow journalism bullshit that we saw from John Cross and not just John Cross, but others across the British media uh, this week. It looks like either they're just trying to pick at the scab of two losses to start the season, or they were briefed by Ramsey's people. 
Either one of those totally possible. But the headline from the mirror, Aaron Ramsey and Arsenal teammates shocked by midfielder's axe as Unai Emery's tough start gets even harder. New boss, who has lost both games so far, effectively made stalwart into final year of his deal scapegoat for midfield failings. Um, You know, it had all the flourishes of a tabloid piece, but basically the argument was that not just Ramsey, but his teammates were shocked that he was left out. Yeah. Um, you know, and but, so yeah. these things are always great, right? I mean, if you're John Cross and you work for what's it, the mirror, yeah. um, that's the kind of shit you have to write. I mean, it just is. That's the job, right? Yeah, um, I, I now, get your point. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, it doesn't mean it's all made up. Uh, and why would it be? Is Ramsey frustrated, i.e. shocked? But, you know, that's what his agent and his media people would say. Shocked. Yes. Are his teammates surprised? Well, we were <laughs> that uh, Ramsey played for you know a chunk of the first game and not really and not for the second game. So yeah, his teammates would be shocked. I was shocked. That, um, that's fair. I, I guess the way it was portrayed is that sure. this is already becoming an issue that is dividing the team, dividing the lock, the the dressing room, and and causing a problem, a headache for the coach. And I mean, sure. So well, this I guess is crunch time. Let's assume that. Ramsey's pushing to get a an attractive contract laid in front of him. You know, this is his this is his key moment and his key few days, and he's uh, he's contracted this to his PR and agent uh, to get the best deal they can. Short of calling everybody at Arsenal a motherfucker, they're going to they're allowed take out whatever tools they have in their kit bag. They're going to kick up a, st- a stink. Um, to try and get it over the line in the most attractive way possible, possible as a deal, um, or uh, create the the excuses uh, that if it doesn't happen then and they need to come back in January and and look at going elsewhere, it was because he was on, he was harshly unfairly treated. So it's a very common story arc line um, in which I think if you just tune down uh, the, the frequencies on everything. Uh, it's probably mostly true, just not nearly as dramatic. Yeah, I see. My the thing I could see happening here is I don't think Emery is going to look at the way Ozil played against Chelsea and feel that he he can trust him in in the ten, number ten position. And I don't know that you can have a true number ten playing the way Emery wants to. Find me a pressing team. We we covered this in the post match pod, but find me a pressing team that plays with a number ten. You're just not going to find it. And you know, I I think. He's not going to feel that he can put Ozil in that position again, or he probably shouldn't at a minimum. Um, but I do think you need Ozil's creativity and in his vision in unlocking a defense like West Ham's at home. And so I think he might be inclined to bring Ramsey back in to be more of an intense agent of the press in central midfield, you know, with, let's say, Torreira and Chaka, or Ganduzi and Chaka, and uh, Torreira and Ganduzi, whoever it is behind him. That means Ozil gets shunted out to one of those wide forward places, which I don't have a problem with, but then who who drops out? Is it Mkhitaryan, who can definitely get among the goals and, and we've seen that he can have that inspirational contribution? Or is it Iwobi, who we may not have as much confidence in, but is coming off a great position? I mean, for you, do you think that the most likely outcome here is that one of Iwobi or Mkhitaryan drops to the bench so that Ozil and Ramsey can both play? Uh, yeah, I think Mkhitaryan will play again. Uh, I di- for whatever reasons, I just didn't think he was bad as everybody said. I mean, he was. Yes, there was the goal. Um, yes, he kind of tracked him, 
Uh, I thought he was really fucking good. I also thought, I mean, he was hammered in the City game, and I just didn't agree with that at all. I mean, I didn't think he was great, uh, but I think he did a lot of good, and and he was all right. So for me, uh, I rate his performances in the first two games way ahead of the fucking uh, as advertised. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't drop him. I thought uh, Wobie was did really well, and he should get a look in very soon again. But we've we've seen various Awobies. I, I don't think we can say that's that's a Wobie from here on in. I think with a team sitting deep, he struggles a bit. I think Mikatarian really has the blueprint on those corners. Uh, his relationship with Bellerin was was eye catching. Um, you'd probably want to double down on that. Uh, that that might be putting Ozil on the other wing or or fo- forcing Ozil into the ten. But Mikatarian on the right really paid off there. Um, though I'm sure him and and Nacho is such an intelligent footballer. I'm sure he can do it from the other. He can certainly do it from the other side, and and Nacho can. So um, Mikatarian starts for me. I think he's when when Emery walks into that uh, that team room and starts talking about his tactics. The people who absolutely fucking get it, the first name on the team sheet in terms of understanding what he wants to do, I think is Mikatarian, um, and I think uh, Genduzi has been his surprise guy who got it from the start because he had nothing to lose and no baggage, and and maybe they have some communications advantages from the. Uh, Liga and the fact that Emery, I would guess now, is pretty damn fluent and that they both arrived on day one. There's a few players, I think, who really get Emery's message and are not contaminated or confused by what Arsenal did in the previous season. Uh, I think Mkhitaryan's more key to it than we think. Well, if that's the case then, you know, I I guess we're looking at a situation where Ramsey and Ozil either are the ones who you know it's one one of the two of them or that's Ozil, my feeling yeah yeah or Ozil gets shunted out wide and you know I I don't know I guess this is the this is the funny thing and and Tim you know brought it's the this, great it's the great thing isn't yeah, it? it's just not knowing anymore no fucking <laughs> it's exciting but uh, it, the it, only things I've got in terms of selections along the way are I can name a player or two and I've I've done reasonably over the first two games where I where maybe they're a bit surprising where I'd say they'd be in the lineup, but I just can't get to guess the lineup, which is fucking great. It is great. And I think the other possibility that we haven't really addressed, and I guess I'll run it by you just really quickly, is there an argument that in a game like this, where we plan to have more of the ball and want to get more of our attacking options on the pitch, Ramsey drops deeper. And so Ozil does get the 10, and Ramsey falls into one of the two positions behind him so that he can bomb forward when we're attacking. You know, yeah, may, it's, maybe it's a, a Terrera Ramsey axis back there. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a very interesting question. What comes to mind is Emery uh, reportedly having convinced the powers that be that he had a plan for Ramsey and Ozil. Uh, we'll remember that from kind of the, the Arteta versus Emery uh, kind of final showdown and how Gazidis leaked that uh, they've been really uh, impressed by Emery's vision for Ramsey and Ozil. I'm guessing we've begun to see his vision for Ramsey and it's not sitting deep. So, I, I mean, of course he's learning as he goes, but I'm guessing it's not an accident that we saw him very, very far up the pitch. And maybe that's just how Emery sees him. Shit or bust. Yeah. 
I I have to admit that I think he's got sort of an interesting issue on his hands now between Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang and Lacazette and Ozil and Ramsey and with Iwobi coming in and actually playing well against Chelsea that, you know, we, we all kind of had a lineup in our head that got all our favorites on the pitch yeah. together. Yep. That's gone now, and that's fine. That's yeah. probably for the best. That's great. Yeah, you, you shouldn't just have favor to get to play every game, but what I think uh, is... And think of the corners we painted our... Uh, 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 sorry to interrupt the interrupter. Yeah, in well, chief, let's but. stay on brand a little bit, please. <laughs> but isn't it uh, interesting that basically what he's done is the, the corners we painted ourselves into last year where we couldn't find our way to an effective midfield uh, because of the players involved. And now we bring in these two new players uh, and we're just not painted into a corner anymore because it ju- it really could be Torreira and Ganduzi as the pivots. Um, and, and that's what needed to be done. We needed to throw Ramsey and Chaka and Ozil to some extent out and then say, all right, who goes back in? And all bets are off. I think it's fucking great. I, I, I think I it's love great. Ramsey, I love Ozil. But, you know, I, I think that the issue you have is it does make you look back on, a, you know, asset allocation, resource allocation, I should say, and say, you know, we committed a lot to Ozil. We now not, own... Not Emery's problem, though. No, no, no. You know, no, no I, I know you're not. agreeing with this, mm-hmm. but I mean, I mean, that's the beauty of it. Um he has decided it's not his fucking problem what the price tag... Uh, to some extent, he, he's kind of got to live with Ozil for a while. We would have thought he had to live with Ozil and, and Emery, but maybe he's learned from Ramsey. PSG mm-hmm. and is enjoying the fact that the politics, the, the, to, the top men at the club aren't saying, actually, you got li- you got to listen to these guys, as in you've got to really... They're too busy proofreading their contract with AC yeah, exactly. Milan. Exactly. I don't think worry. there's a vacuum at the moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't think it would have held... A, it seemed like they would have backed him anyway. But yeah. he just became more powerful, didn't he, Emery, within the the setup. May may only be temporary, but for the next few months, he's kind of... Raul's off in the distance. Sven is worried about scouting. Ivan's going elsewhere. You know, Josh is is globe trotting. Emery's fucking saying things. Oh, when you look across at, at Mourinho and Woodward, I thought Mourinho was absolutely fucked, and yet he's managed to turn the tables a bit on Woodward in terms of where the heat is. Now, Emery's not playing those kind of politics, but uh, to him has come in a come a, a certain additional potential power here in that he's the fixed figure the one we can relate to the one who currently has a plan so uh, it's also a reminder paul that once the season starts the football comes back into focus and the football is the center of what this entire organization is about and so while ivan gazidis can steal headlines all summer long when we're in a transfer window once the ball is kicked the main man at the club becomes the guy standing on the touchline um you know so so that that does grant you power too now that helps when you put wins under your belt too. So, you know, he needs to do that to consolidate some of that power. And I, I do think that we should get into the asset, uh, or resource allocation stuff because, uh, Swiss Ramble, who is phenomenal, great follow Mm. on Twitter and a guy who covers the financial stuff of the premier league and football clubs in general, really brilliantly, but especially Arsenal, he's an Arsenal supporter, uh, had a great thread on it on Twitter. I'm not going to read the whole thread, but you should go find it. Here's what we'll do. We'll take a break. And when we come back, 
We're going to talk a little bit about that thread and just take a little bit of a look back on some of the mistakes we've made in these windows and with our resource allocation and how the cash has dwindled and maybe a little bit of, of what that means for going forward and, and the Ramsey decision and things like that. First, we're going to talk to Scott. He can give us just a few uh, stats on West Ham, on Arsenal, if you don't know them already, and give us his idea of how he sees that playing out. So we'll take a break. We'll pay some bills. Uh, we'll talk to Scott, and we'll come back, and then we will go into how Arsenal uh, have managed their resources. Okay, it's time to tell you about our friends at Beer52.com. You got to go to Beer52.com forward slash vision and sign up. They are the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. They search out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries, and they bring them back for their members. That's you. Uh, This is UK only, but if you go right now and sign up just for being a listener, you're going to get a free case of craft beer. All you have to do is pay £2.95 postage. Uh, Every month focuses on a new country or theme. And if you sign up now, you'll get a chance to try the one they have going on. And it is a good one. They are featuring fantastic beers from the winners of the Raise the Bar competition. It's Beer 52's search for the UK's best new small brewers in partnership with London Craft Beer Festival. Uh, You'll enjoy the likes of Unity's 7% Export Stout, Boxcar's Belgian IPA, and West by Three's Mothership Wit Passion Fruit. So go to beer52.com forward slash vision right now. Sign up. You're going to love it. Beer52.com, the best way to discover new craft beers from around the world. Okay, so we're back with Scott. You can find him on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Hello. Uh, writes great stuff on crabstats.blogspot.com on the short fuse. He writes for Ars blog doing their uh, by the numbers column, which uh, awesome one, by the way, just published. He did a glossary of sort of stats terms, and it's really useful if you find that you're interested in the stuff, but sometimes some of it is uh, not comprehensible to you. I thought you did a nice job with that. So thanks for that, Scott. And let's talk West Ham. So first things first, uh, they have had almost as good a start to their season as we have. Do yeah. you, uh, what is your expectation of them as an opponent and uh, what kind of football are they going to play? What, uh, what have they been doing in attack and defense? Give me everything I need to know about West Ham. So I know how confident to feel about this game. Well, they got absolutely blown apart by Liverpool. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will be the, the blueprint that Arsenal are able to, to use to, you know, be able to get that same result. Um, yeah, the big thing is, They've given up a, a ton of XG, um, you know, 4.5. So they are second worst in the league right now. Only Huddersfield has given up more. And Huddersfield um, just played Manchester City for reference. That's right. Um, Huddersfield, and, um, you know, played. They had, they had the same slate as us, you know, just uh, the reserves for when they're home and away. Yeah, so that's right. Chelsea and City, we're, yeah. we're better than Huddersfield, so that's good for us. Um, but yeah, so back to West Ham. Um, yeah, so they've given up um, 4.5 um, expected goals. If we look at the the shots on target that they've conceded, um, they would ex- expect to give up over six goals, um, and they've given up six non-penalty goals this season. Um, they're giving up good shots. Um, everything has a, an average XG of 0.15. So yeah, not a great defensive team as of right now. Yeah, and uh, their midfield, Jack Wilshire, Mark Noble, not too intimidating, huh? Exactly. If you wanted to be able to kind of be able to go through a midfield, that would be the midfield that you would trot out. Let me ask you this. So defensively, they look like a sieve. And I I think there's every reason to believe we could maybe get the best of them with our fearsome attackers. But we know that we are not the most reliable team defensively. Have they had any joy going forward? I think they have Javier Hernandez and uh, Marco Natovich 
Any concerns? Are they playing uh, also, well? Also, uh, a new a new player, Felipe Anderson. Oh, Felipe um, Anderson just, as well. Yeah, yeah, just came in from from Lazio, who seems to be an exciting young talent. Um, he'd be the guy that that I would actually probably be most concerned about on the wing. Um, in my post that I wrote for for Twelve Football, and you know, previewing this, he was kind of my guy that I wanted to to focus on. Where's the uh, attack from? What 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 should we be concerned about? Uh, he's a, a wide left player, I believe. Um, so that's that's really where you're gonna want to try to shut him down. He can come in um, and play midfield. They've had trouble um, actually being able to use him, seeing as they have a, a midfield double pivot of Noble and Wilshire, which, while it has pretty good passing, they haven't been able to actually hold on to the ball very long because the other team has just attacked through them. So it'll be interesting if they actually play um, a defensive midfielder. Um, I believe they, they just brought one in, Carlos Sanchez. So I think he actually might be a, an interesting um, player if they're able to, to play him in midfield and maybe they go with a, a three or they move Jack Wilshire up a little bit higher up the pitch and go with uh, Noble and Sanchez at the, the midfield. I think that might be um, give them a little bit more stability to be able to attack from. I, I still don't see a ton in the numbers that makes me think that they're a, a great attacking side. Um, they've only you know taken or you know 15 shots, can uh, be able to generate 1.15 um, xG right now. So not not great numbers. Did but they create anything against Liverpool? Because Liverpool, obviously, I mean, we don't we don't have the kind of press Liverpool do, but we are going to try to press them. Did they break that press and create chances against them at all, or not really? Um, against Liverpool, they took five shots and had an xG of 0.7. So they had a fairly good xG per shot of 1.5, but or sorry, 0.15, um, but just did not get any volume. Yeah. So I mean, because the only thing that worries me, and I we covered this, uh, Paul and I did a little bit, is just that. We're going to have more of the ball this game. Uh, my belief is that they won't be pressing us, the, obviously the way City did and, and even the way Chelsea did. But we're probably going to press them and play with the high line. And we saw against Chelsea that, at least early in the game, we gave them too much space in midfield and they were able to just ping balls in you know, behind our, our high line and create a lot of opportunity that way. So do you have any concern about them sitting back and maybe just looking to play long and, and get in behind the high line? It's definitely a possibility. Um, you know, you, you do worry, you know, Noble and Wilshire, while they have a lot of flaws, um, being able to, to find a, a line-breaking pass is something that either of them could do. Um, but like, yeah, you mentioned the pressing, uh, looking at the, the passes per defensive action stats, um, they really don't jump out. They're, um, you know, about 15 um, overall, uh, 15 passes per defensive action, which is well above average. Um, at the midfield, which where, would mean you know, low, low pa- uh, press intensity, low pressing. Yeah, more passes allowed per defensive action would signify a less intensive press um, at midfield. They're right about 10 um, passes per defensive action. Um, so, again, even in the midfield, not really doing a ton of contesting, which given their midfield duo makes sense. So, yeah, I think you're right saying that this might be a game where Arsenal um, should be in control. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I believe that we will be OK here. I think the thing that has made me nervous and when I think about this game and how it could play out poorly there aren't a lot of scenarios where I see it playing out poorly but the the one that I could see would be that they sit back and their plan is to get it to Noble or Wilshire deep in their own midfield and play direct and quickly up the pitch behind the high line and that's why I worry a little bit about where Mesut is going to play we saw him really not 
add that intensity in midfield against Chelsea. And Jorginho had a lot of space, whether that was a little bit of Aubameyang's responsibility or, or Ozil's responsibility. So for you to avoid that same kind of issue and to really keep West Ham pinned back, uh, take advantage of our, our possession, but also not be vulnerable to that kind of counter opportunity, how would you like to see him set up the attack in the midfield? I'm still leaning towards wanting to see a, a true 4-3-3. I know that that's not necessarily Emery's bread and butter. He tries to stick with that 4-2-3-1. Um, I, I really wouldn't mind seeing, you know, uh, Torreira come in as a, you know, the, the deepest of the players, um, and then you know either uh, Gwendouzi Ramsey or Ajaka Ramsey, um, and then you, you know you got to push Ozil out wide, and I think that that is just going to be okay. Um, but I think just to kind of give a base for the attack Arsenal need three true midfielders um, in the game yeah and and is your expectation that both Ozil and Ramsey will start in this game I I think so Um, we're at home so I I think that you can be a little bit more cavalier with attacking so and and I think that we're going to be expect to have the ball um, actually, I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if um, it's Ramsey in the 10 again um, to be the initiator of Trigger. the press. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I was especially with they're going to expect to pin them back. So I think they'll, they'll want someone who is going to be more adept at being that first line of defense. And I think Ramsey couldn't do that job really well. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way it goes. What about uh, what about it will be then? Is he the one who, who loses out as a result of that? It's possible, but he actually played pretty well. So you I might play great, him. but someone's yeah, got to go. I mean, is it Ozil that goes, or is it or is it a Wobi? It might be, or it could be Mkhitaryan that that drops out, and you know you have Ozil out on the the right, and a Wobi on the left with Aubameyang on up top. Do you, I mean just from end end product situation? And I mean, don't you think maybe there's just a little more confidence in Mkhitaryan? I, I realize a Wobi scored a goal as well and played really well, but do you think from an end product standpoint, you'd prefer to have Mkhitaryan on the pitch? Yeah, I think that's probably going to be the way it goes. But, you know, it's such a... I come back to this every time. It's such an unbalanced way the squad has been built that it's it's really hard to pick a lineup um, where you have, you know, a bunch of guys that all want to play in that, that 10 or that center forward, center forward spot. And we really don't have any true wide players. So we are really doing a lot of trade-offs when we're making those moves. It's just... There's no good choice there. Yeah, I mean, I could see a situation where Ozil misses out in this game only because I think you want to be all over Mark Noble and Jack Wilshire like flies on shit. I think you want, you know, a Wobie drifting in and pressing. You want Ramsey pressing. You want two guys in their face the minute the ball comes to them um, to make yeah, sure I that very, they... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I very much agree with that. I was just, you know, we watched Wilshire too much at the end of last season where he got caught dwelling on the ball way too many times so hopefully he has a few of those moments in this match and you know Arsenal can take advantage and turn those into goals yep and I think it's it's an interesting challenge look the fact of the matter is as encouraged as I was by some of the things we saw in the city in the Chelsea game playing at home against a team that's going to sit deep presents a totally different set of challenges and while I don't want Emery to throw out his ideas because of the results in those first two matches it also may be the case that the ideas he had for those matches aren't suitable to this one. Um, so we're going to find out. I, I really, really worry about the high line only because I think a team like West Ham can only hurt you so badly, but you give them 40 yards of green grass to play a ball into, and even bad teams can find ways to exploit that. We've seen it. 
Yeah, and and especially if the the press isn't perfect, because that's one of the things that you see with you know, especially Manchester City, they are so good at that that they do not give the when they give the ball up. Rarely, it is always a player right on them counter pressing. And if they don't get that counter press quickly, they do a cheeky foul, which they never get carded for, just to stop even any opportunity of playing a ball over their high line. Yeah. So, and if Arsenal can't do that. It does spell trouble. Um, one thing that just to go back for, you know, talking about being able to unpick a set defense, I, that might be um, a check in Ozil's favor where he's one of the few players on Arsenal, one of the the best players in the world at really kind of playing one of those killer balls against a set defense, which that might, you know, go into Emery's decision making and deciding his team. Also a fantastic crosser of the ball. Um, not something we do a lot of, but... You know, I, I think when you have possession on the edge of the area a lot, crosses come into play, and he's fantastic at that. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, the, the other thing is, you know, a lot of focus has been on playing out from the back, but if West Ham don't press, the playing out from the back issue is not really going to be that that focused on, is it? I mean, this is another game for Czech to start. Yeah, I think that he probably gets one more game. I think I think he might actually get a run of games all the way through the Europa League, um, and then that's when we might have seen uh, uh, Leno come in. And then after that, there might be a decision um, if Leno starts to be really impressive in the, the Europa League. That's just kind of my my feeling now. Yeah. Unless Czech really looks bad, but he has, you know, his his shot stopping has been very impressive. Yeah. Um, so I do want to give Czech, you know, that he has saved quite a few uh, really really good chances this year. Score prediction? Um, I have it probably about three to one. Three to one. Okay. Three to one to Arsenal, I assume. Three to one to Arsenal. Yep. Sounds good. All right. Well, Scott's on Project Twitter. Twenty four. Yeah, Project Twenty Four. By the way, I want to I want to pat you on the back for just swiping that from Clive, just taking that and just throwing it on the the the, the Scott train there. That was hey, brilliant. I, I I did give him credit that it was all coming from his idea yeah. there. So a- attribution, man. They say that, uh, imitation is the fondest form of flattery, so it's good. No, uh, I think it is a, a great title. I don't know that it's going to come to fruition. Hopefully after this week, it's not Project 21, but we will <laughs> we'll see what happens. In any event, uh, Scott's on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crap. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Paul and talk a little bit about whether Ivan Gazidis is worth anything. <laughs> Okay, we're back. So now that we've had the statistical look at the game, let's get back with Paul and uh, just briefly spend some time going over uh, what Swiss Ramble had to say on Twitter and the sort of financial side of things for a moment. Paul, this isn't always the most exhilarating thing to discuss, and I think as Arsenal fans, we often get too roped into it. But one of the things he kind of reviewed and looked at from the past few seasons is that at one point, Arsenal sat on a pile of cash that was bigger than many of the big clubs in the Premier League combined. And over time, that cash has dwindled in some respects uh, through lack of player sales, uh, obviously through purchases, but also just through the sheer depreciation of that, the value of that cash into a transfer bubble when we kind of kept our uh, powder dry, so to speak. So for you, as you read that, um, that thread and you look at what Arsenal have done financially, I mean, Ivan Gazidis is someone who has gotten a lot of credit for his time at Arsenal. I'm not entirely sure why, but I look at it and I see a guy who has been really outplayed by his rivals in terms of commercial deals, that has not secured commercial deals or anything beyond, let's say, average, if not below average. 
and has really helped guide the club in terms of its financial strategy into what's sort of a disastrous policy. Sit on cash, wait for FFP that never came along, uh, wait for transfer values to plateau, which they never did. I mean, in the wake of the news that he may be going to AC Milan, would it really be that bad to lose Gazidis? I mean, when you look at the the facts, the cold facts over the time he spent at the club, has he done anything that leads you to believe that, that this would be a great loss for us? Well, if he were to leave in a year or two's time, I don't think it would break my heart based on what we've seen. Uh, I just think it's shitty timing from the standpoint of putting the thri- the triumvirate together of Raul, Sven, and Emery. And, you know, if things get sticky in a few months' time, you want the guy who who put that together to be there to fight tooth and nail. And we bring in somebody new. I, I assume they'll back the person, but it, it's not. it can't be with the same level of commitment or authority as the guy who picked it and knew why he picked it. So... To me, that's the biggest loss. Uh, it's very hard to know. Uh, I mean, you kind of edge towards a damning indictment of Gazidis, and I think you can definitely make that argument. I just th- don't think it's very easy to know. Uh, had things been great, how much that was down to him, or uh, if things are terrible, how much that is down to him. As I look through the numbers, I'm no financial expert, um, but it's certainly not stunning or startling. It's also not totally terrible it's just kind of meh uh we kind of stood still uh in many ways but stood still also means growing because the league is growing and tv revenue is growing um we all know we've been absolutely fucking dog shit on transfers for a couple of years for example i think that's the two places you could really hit ivan are on transfers and commercial revenue and in particular on commercial revenue, because in that area, he and the team and Arsenal in, uh, and the Arsenal brass really didn't have any impediments. On transfers, you know, you can't bring in players or sell players that Arsene Wenger did or didn't want. So uh, you could make all sorts of fucking uh, explanations, excuses for why transfers wasn't this person or that person's fault and and, and it'd be impossible to unknot that that ball of wool yeah so well yeah, go ahead i mean a, cu- a couple of things here that i think are pretty damning okay so you go from 2009 when he arrived uh during that period the the revenue was grown by 198 million under gazetas only outpaced by city and united in absolute terms but the second smallest percentage growth of the big six clubs. So of all the big six clubs during his time here, we've had the second smallest percentage growth in terms of revenue. So I, you know, I think that's not exactly a glowing, uh, uh, recommendation for him in terms of the job he's done. The 198 million revenue growth. Most of it is from the TV deal and everybody got a piece of that. Okay. So the commercial deal, the only thing he's really put together and the thing where you would have expected him to excel was the Emirates deal. But here you go. Uh, our commercial revenue has grown by $69 million, second lowest of the big six during the period that he was there. Okay? So second lowest percentage increase and second lowest in terms of actual dollars, the, the commercial revenue. Um, you know, I think that is worrying. Now, here's the other thing. He presided over a strategy of keeping powder dry and all those things that we've talked about. 
this is pretty damning, okay? In 2012, Arsenal had almost as much cash, $154 million, as the rest of the Premier League combined, $181 million, okay? Fast forward five years, the rest of the Premier League now has $819 million combined to our 180 So we basically stood still. But I think that's right. I agree. Let, let me say, mm-hmm. I kind of agree with everything you said. I think that's a bullshit discussion that I've seen. Why would we have more ca- cash on hand? The issue for the reason we have this sudden flip flop is because the other clubs didn't have any fucking cash at oh, all. Oh, no, I get it, Paul. They were, yeah, I, I get You so, don't have to defend that point. Look, there, cash, there's. Cash you don't flow want, is a weird one, right? Yeah, you don't necessarily 100... want your club to be sitting on a bunch of cash. My point is at a period of time where we had the leverage of having a lot more cash than everybody else in the league. Rather than using that leverage to distance ourselves from the competition and consolidate our position, we had summers like the one where we only bought check. We did a bad job utilizing yeah. our cash advantage to we improve had cash the playing. And set. we had apparently no fucking idea how to leverage it. I yes, agree with that's, that. That's and, my and point. The powder yes. dry one. Um, I mean, it sounded good at the time. Had they leaped on something the next year, great, that's powder dry, dry, but it looked like they had powder and they didn't know what the fuck to use powder for because summer after summer. But what it reflects is the dysfunction. I mean, what, how would we have used that money? We would have used the, that money, money to get better players, to get success, to get better players, to sell on, etc., and that was a dynamic between Arson, Ivan, and the club. Uh, but, you know, you, you can blame, rather than blame, blaming no side, it's a pretty safe bet to blame both sides. Yeah, okay, that's fair. So, I mean, ultimately for you, I mean, look, he, he brought in Raul, he brought in Sven, he brought in Emery. You know, that that, that group is there. That's, that looks pretty good at the moment. It even does. Even if we have have a lot of questions on it. That's the thing he's done really well. And there was all this talk about, oh, what's the succession planning, which I always thought was a little bit overblown because how can you do succession planning when the manager isn't remotely close to going? But he actually did a pretty good fucking job of the succession planning in terms of putting in a hierarchy for decision-making within the club. Where we've been fucking horrible is players in and out over the last few years and the balance of the squad, and an actual plan to transition. But that was partly because the manager had absolutely no intention of leaving. Yeah, I, you know, I guess the problem for me with Gazidis is he he ducked a lot of responsibility during the Arsene Wenger years by virtue of people just assuming that Arsene was in charge of everything. And, you know, maybe he was. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't know. But what I will say uh, is... I think more the issue was... Arson had a very strong no, a very strong veto on important things. Well, but I'm going to put that to one side and just say, while that may have been the case, the fact is we made some very bad deals with players. We did not do a great job of selling, and we were not great at managing contract situations. And we just assumed it was Arson's fault. But certainly, Gazidis was in the room as part of the the decision-making process for those things happening. And now we look at it with Aaron Ramsey, for example. And once again, one of the really special assets at Arsenal, whether you rate him or don't rate him, he's a favorite, he's not a favorite. He's clearly one of the big assets at the club. He's been allowed to get his contract situation right down to where Alexis did, right down to where Ozil did, right down to where Theo Walcott did. These were all players, you know, who had value at one point that we allowed to deteriorate to the point where we either had to overpay them to keep them or be under-remunerated for getting them out of the club. 
And, you know, we're right back in that situation. We're either going to pay Ramsey arguably more than we really should, or we're going to sell him really cheap in January, or we're going to lose him on a free. And losing Aaron Ramsey on a free as the outcome of his time at the club just seems insane to me from an asset protection standpoint. So, you know, these are things that that Ivan has been a part of. And, you know, it, it undermines the argument that it was all Arson's fault because if it was all Arson's fault, then the Ramsey situation was our first chance to see us handle it differently, to do it differently, to do it better, to, you know, use our leverage, whatever leverage we had, you know, be ruthless, make the kinds of decisions that are necessary to to get the club in the best position to succeed vis-a-vis his contract situation and we didn't do that so for me i can make an argument against that uh, in sure. general i agree right uh, here's what i think gazetas is part of the picture it's very hard to un- un- untangle how much of it was him how much of it was the club dysfunction how much of it was stan's blind support of arson so that's 2v1 when it came to these things and you you come to the Wenger situation, or sorry, the the Ramsey situation. How does Gazidis make a deal with Ramsey, who's pushing for Ozil money, when he doesn't even know if Emery really, really wants him, as opposed to just kind of wants him? And we've seen some of those issues, you know, the the Bernd Leno discussion in terms of, is that a goalkeeper Emery wanted or really, really wanted? Well, maybe he just was kind of okay with it. Maybe it kind of happened before Emery had much say-so. And here you are with Ramsey. I mean, we, we, he would have been pushing for an Ozil-sized deal since Ozil got his deal, or, or some percentage of it, 80% of it, 90%. You know, that's his reference point. Uh, even his agent has been kind of retweeting or tweeting stuff that's favorable to the idea Ramsey deserves a deal uh, in respect to uh, Ozil's uh, remuneration. So... It, I don't know how you do a deal with that before Emery says this guy's key to you. And Ramsey may not be key to us. So it, to me, it's another hangover. But that's that's just one more piece of the puzzle. I think overall, I won't be awfully sad, apart from that I think it's shit timing, if we get a, fra- a fresh coat of paint in the CEO's office. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that the timing isn't ideal. But I think when you look in terms of where the commercial deals have gone, the strategy of how our cash was managed, the way our leverage and and, uh, advantage was allowed to slip and deteriorate, the way we have not been proactive but reactive to critical contract situations at the club. I think all of those things, that many of which fell on arson, have to be leveled at Gazidis as well. And I, I think at this point... You don't have a guy who's proven himself to be an expert operator in the commercial deals. You don't have a guy who's proven himself to be an expert operator with uh, player contract situations. You don't have a guy who's proven to be an expert operator in terms of achieving the outcomes he even really necessarily wanted at the club vis-a-vis the manager when there was a power struggle with him at Arson. You know, whether that's fair to put on him or not is another story. All, all in all and overall, for Arsenal to compete the way a Liverpool is competing the whole machine has to run efficiently. Just look at Manchester United. All the fucking money in the world. But between Jose Mourinho and uh, Ed Woodward, they are dysfunctional. And thank fuck for that. Because if they had a competent guy at the head of that ship with those resources, they could be fearsome. Realistically, coming off an invincible season, coming off a move to the Emirates, coming off of some iconic players, Arsenal should have been in a position to grow not just 
bigger than they were, but grow the way United had. And Gazidis presided over a period where that was a possibility and never became a reality. And I think he has to own some of that. And if AC Milan want to give them an equity stake or some such bullshit to go to, to that club on the basis of what he's done at Arsenal, I think that's really questionable, but I'm totally fine with it. So anyway, let's yeah, leave I, I, yeah. So I'd just Final like thought. to quickly say, uh, 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 timing shit, given that Emery's just arrived, but I think it's an opportunity for us. And I'd also like to offer, if there's any United supporters accidentally listening to this, if they need a guy who needs a banner printed up, or they need a guy to fly over their ground this weekend. Uh, we know some guys, so just get in touch with us. Oh, they, they've still got the same guys from Moyes and from uh, Van Gaal, oh, yeah, yeah, and true. yeah, they're they're true. fine. They've got plenty yeah, of experience, more than we do, um, <laughs> which is beautiful, by the way. Uh, and and we want Jose to stay. So if you want a banner that says Jose, we love you, we can fly that one over Old Trafford for you. Uh, in any event, score prediction for the weekend. Uh, uh so I think three uh, one. I'm going to say 5-1 Arsenal. Fuck me. Seriously? I mean, no thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, 5-1 Arsenal. You nut job. Why do you do this to yourself? I, I can only be happy if I'm in a perpetual state of disappointment. In any event, <laughs> uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Thanks, Paul's. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Please block me there. Uh, please visit our friends at beer52.com and uh, get some free craft beer because uh, you'll want to crack them all open as you celebrate the five goals going in uh, at the Emirates this weekend, at least the five Arsenal goals. So uh, we will be back after the match, as always. Um, the Matteo Ganduzzi in the Spotlight episode is up on Patreon right now. If you would support the podcast, uh, we would really appreciate it. Uh, we're doing our best to get more stuff out to you, live halftime shows, Special bonus episodes, preview pods like this one, which are totally free, obviously. Uh, and we love you for your support and really appreciate it. We also post these episodes uh, free of charge uh, and ad-free, I should say, on the Patreon. So you can sign up there, patreon.com forward slash Arsenal Vision Podcast. Uh, or you can visit us at arsenalvisionpodcast.com anytime. In any event, uh, we really appreciate you listening. We'll come back with a post-match podcast on Monday. Until then, enjoy Arsenal 10, West Ham News. 